peace, peace, peace. I am currently out here at a lake side, lakefront, just enjoying the day and reading from the healing wisdom of Africa, finding life purpose through nature, ritual, and community, written by Malidoma Somme. It's an amazing book. I am going through it thoroughly. And while I will not read it on my read the entire book here on the podcast, I am choosing to share some excerpts from it. Um, the indigenous perspective, the indigenous African perspective on the five elements is mm, enlightening to say the very least. Let's get into it. going to start out with the attributes of the element of fire. I am reading from page 209. In the indigenous mind, fire kindles and sustains an animating and pervasive energy in all that lives. It is in the water that runs. It is in the trees, the rocks, the earth, and in ourselves. It is the mediator between worlds since it is very close to the purest form of energy. Any connection with ancestors, spirits, and the other world is mediated by fire. A complete understanding of fire requires a serious relationship with death and the dead. Because fire burns, those who relate to fire are often tense and must be clear about their intention in working with the fire. The tension referred to here is like a charge of energy about to burst. Those who carry such fiery energy are being prepared for energetic action that reflects and is the result of a touch from the other world. Fire is the rising force that makes us do, see, feel, love, and hate. Fire has great power, both outside of us and within us. On the outside, visible fire drives us to perform our respective duties, to fulfill our life purpose. But A fire burns also within us. The fire within connects us to our real family, the people we are always drawn to when we see them and causes them to recognize us. This fire originates in the other world and connects us always to the ancestors. Through the fire within, We can converse with those we left behind in the other world by being born here. The inner fire is a rope that connects us to the world we abandoned when we were born into a human body. To the indigenous, that world is our real home. This does not mean that this world is not real. It is a place we pass through. 
the way to move to a productive understanding of and relationship with fire is through ritual, where fire is experienced not as a combustive fire, but as a warm, comforting, and loving fire connecting us to the ancestors in the other world. At the core of the fire ritual is the indigenous belief that each person is born with a purpose and that this purpose was presented to the council of the ancestors in the spirit world for approval prior to each person's journey to earth. We come into the world in order to bring to completion that very plan which, as we are born into this side of reality, became our reason for human life. In order to fulfill our purpose, we need the driving force of fire, just as a vehicle needs fuel to reach its destination. Two things here are at work. We must remember what we came here to do, and we must have a community that knows and remembers our purpose and supports it fully. We do not want a community that tells us what it thinks we should do, but a community that unconditionally provides for us in a manner that allows us to accept our responsibilities and realize the life of our purpose. From an indigenous point of view, every time a situation pushes us to move faster than is appropriate, every time our heart beats more quickly than normal, every time we get excited for one reason or another, we become situated in the fiery origin, that chaotic place at the time of the beginning of the world. To be ill is therefore to be en route toward that origin. It implies heat, activity, friction, and struggle. It also calls attention to the fact that the encounter between fire and water that resulted in the creation of our earth and life is not to be taken for granted. The kind of balance required for the maintenance of peace and reconciliation is so tenuous that we are constantly thrown back toward tense and chaotic fiery states. Many circumstances of our lives can send us toward the chaotic fire, such as death, accident, shocks to our life that we connect with. It is the indigenous understanding that we attract these circumstances in order to push us forward to a deeper transformation. The indigenous does not believe in coincidences or in accidents. When fire is misaligned, the power of fire must be aimed towards something through focused intention or fire becomes misaligned in the psyche and in society. For example, a person who constantly attracts or makes trouble has his or her fire misaligned. Correction of the person's behavior would have to be ritualistic. That is, it would take place in a ritual similar to the one outlined above. When the tension produced by fire is not focused, it produces an extreme 
and often destructive tension in the world. When the fire within a person produces only fire in the world around them, the result is most often violence and death. The fiery temperament of the world, and particularly the West, has resulted in a great deal of spilling of blood, both symbolic and literal. Indigenous peoples see the death that results from war or accident as sacrifices to fire. Just as the animal killed in the hunt was offered to the fire as a sacrifice. But the engine of fire in the West appears to indigenous people to be the technological machine which consumes nature around the world. Villagers see the fire of technology consuming both through its speed as in accidental deaths of animals near highways and through the capitalist accumulation of land and rape of natural resources. From an indigenous point of view, Westerners are sacrificing much to fires that rage out of control. Just as fires consume everything in its path, so consumers in the West sacrifice the life of spirit for an endless pursuit of material goods. Material consumption does not provide care for the soul. It is as if misaligned inner fire is encouraged and supported in modern culture, something necessary to boost production and consumption. When adequately programmed through advertising and the media, people want to accumulate items because such items are regarded as an opportunity for fulfillment driven by an internal fire that cannot be quenched the modern consumer is like a greyhound racing for fulfillment the goal becomes not so much to reach a destination as to stay in your lane and keep running when this inner fire is not connected to its source it drives people to race endlessly after things that do not matter. For this reason, the fact that fire can become so easily misaligned, I have hesitated before outlining for Westerners how to do fire rituals. From the point of view of my people, the growth, expansion, and progress by which the modern world measures success is a conflagration. Conflagration? A fire burning out of control and consuming everything it touches. It is essential that the modern world stop burning itself and the rest of the planet and to learn to see beyond the notion of fire that can only consume, to see the aspects of fire that can lead to transformation, healing, and a renewed connection to the world of the ancestors and spirit that holds our purpose. To begin making their peace with fire, Westerners must notice the common symptoms of fire in their milieu. In the modern world, being out of alignment with fire translates into pollution of one sort or another. It is as if to be civilized, 
one must infect the air, leak oil into the waters, and seek to move faster today than we did yesterday. Once we understand this as symptomatic of a state of disconnection, then it becomes possible to seek reconnection and reconciliation with the past, changing our intention from consumption as an out-of-control fire to connection like a fire that warms and soothes will bring fire in Western culture under control to a very great extent. It is reconciling oneself with the past, or as the Dakara would say, with the ancestors that brings the inner fire into alignment. The work of grieving is an important part of reconciling with the past. And for that reason, I suggest that water rituals precede fire rituals in the West. The work of building relationships in community also contributes to the taming of fire. Four, in order to have healthy relationships, one must have made peace with the past. One must also tame the inner fire simply in order to live in community. Four, close relationships breed a friction that would rage out of control if the friends or partners had not done a great deal of work with their psyches. When an individual is not in alignment with fire, there is chaos and contradiction in that person's behavior patterns. There is a tendency to be fearful of fire, yet there is an almost irresistible attraction to fire. This confusion comes from a lack of harmony between the fires that burn within the person and the way that this fiery energy is expressed and manifested in the outer world. A fire ritual can allow us to experience the positive energies of fire without this chaos and fear. In a fire ritual, one takes a good look at the intensity of the other world. In the world of magic, heat opens doors. I remember times in the course of initiation rituals when the heat alone would rise to the point where it would open a window into the other world and one would glimpse spirit beings. At those times, I was able to see and also to understand what tribal wisdom means when it declares that divine or ancestral heat comes to us from below, not from above. It was easy to see why God cannot be above the clouds. God is here underneath our feet. The opening was of the earth, not of the sky. The faces that appeared in the heat were ancestral faces peeking into this world. The heat of the fire ritual also reminds us that heat is the circulation of energy. Life is manifested only when energy can circulate. The Dagara language uses the same word, D, to mean burn consume and eat. The connection is not, however, about destruction, but about transformation. Any person 
who goes through a fire ritual involves himself with transformation and change. So I'm no longer at the lakefront. It got really, really busy. I was out there early, so it was nice and quiet. I could do this recording, but yeah, people are now starting to enjoy the lake and splashing and boating and yelling and screaming and running. And yeah, nah, that wasn't the background I was looking for because I would like you to hear what, what it is that I'm reading. The words off of the page of Mali Doma Sobe's book. Um, the next section is a fire ritual. And I contemplated whether or not to read this portion of it. Um, but it's, it's really good information, especially for those of us in the West who need some indigenous healing wisdom in our lives. Um, but things like this on a page, on some pages in a book are good to read, but it's so important for me and others to find our tribe to practice these things with because individualism ain't it. There is no healing in individualism. It's healing within community. That's a very important aspect I am taking away from this book and from things going on in my real life. So, um, and we are sort of a community, although we don't interact with each other personally you do hear my voice and hopefully you feel my energy and I'm putting this reading out into the world to expose it to people who may not pick up this type of book but who may be in need or want or search of this type of information and will listen to this and seek it out for themselves So I am going to read the fire ritual portion of this section of the book, starting on page 213, a fire ritual. In a fire ritual, the fire must be looked at as a bond to the world of the ancestors and spirits, not just as a bonfire because its function is to put people on track, not to burn them off track. The content of the ritual itself must be twofold. First is the casting into the fire of that which is known to interfere with our focus. In other words, the burning fire must consume that which stands between us and the purpose that determines the course of our lives. Next, we must reiterate our commitment to walking our life's path by taking time to commune with the fire, asking that it transform that which it has just consumed into whatever it is we need to thrive and grow and continue. The great power of fire can be very frightening and during a ritual, the intensity of its heat can feel threatening, but fire is what is needed by those who have been lost, those who have been lost. Hmm. Those who have lost connection to their purpose. The fire ritual aims at responding to someone who is extremely creative, has a lot of ideas and projects, 
but who is mysteriously blocked from being able to carry them out. Here, in the West, this might take the form of someone who is always frenetically and frantically busy while running away from things they don't want to see in their life. So, let us take a small group of about 10 people interested in a fire ritual. Each has prepared ahead of time a symbol of what needs to be released into the fire and has brought this object which the fire can burn. It could be a simple piece of paper containing the written version of what needs to be thrown away or a symbolic item of almost any flammable form. It is preferable that the ritual happen at night for when it is dark, the full meaning of fire is revealed. The group will begin by building a fireplace which will be their shrine. One of them must be selected as a fire keeper. He or she will be the person in charge of maintaining the fire at its proper intensity during the ritual. Another person, the ritual leader or facilitator, will be in charge of the general choreography or proceedings. With the group standing, gathered in any formation around the fire to form a bond, the ritual leader leads them in an invocation. In the invocation, the purpose of the ritual must be clearly stressed and stated. Names of allies in the world of spirit must be called. More specifically, ancestors, known and unknown, must be invited to take part in the effort to reconnect with the purposes that burn within. The ritual leader would initiate this, then allow for each participant to invite in those personal helping spirits and ancestors that they wish to be present to assist with the ritual. Next, each participant would be urged to communicate to the group the obstacle he or she intends to overcome. Putting the problem into words destabilizes it and loosens its grip on the psyche, making it possible to give it over to the fire for transformation. At the completion of the invocation, each participant, one at a time, must move close to the fire and experience the heat while keeping their attention focused on the blaze, very conscious of what must be released into the fire. The object that each brought is surrendered to the fire. It is now the time to come to full grips with one's life commitment by devoting undivided attention to the burning fire and embracing the heat. The time each person spends in close proximity to the fire is determined by their need. It is preferable that while there, the rest of the group be engaged in some common activity such as chanting and drumming. Every time an individual completes his or her time before the fire, he is warmly welcomed back into the group with gentle touch and embraces. The assumption here is that each person will return to the group in an emotional state. Such a person needs to experience acceptance. So, as each person completes his part and becomes as a result a transformed person, 
it is the responsibility of the rest of the group to demonstrate its ability to give love, attention, and caring to them. This completes the reintegration of the person. Without this, the person is left feeling very much alone, wondering why they ever submitted to the risk of ritual. After each person has approached the fire and returned to the others, the group moves closer to the flame as a single entity and closes the ritual with a word of gratitude to the ancestors and spiritual allies present at the occasion. The fire ceremony is over. It is useful at the end of the fire ritual to introduce water, for the heat of tension and intention must be monitored and constrained by water so that the fire may transform and not simply incinerate. If, for example, the fire ritual is done near the shore of a stream or lake, immersion of everyone in water afterwards is a good idea. A fire ritual is a place where things that interfere with our connection with our soul's purpose can be surrendered and where fire can serve as a point of focus. The result of this ritual is usually a sense of orientation and even calmness symptomatic of a certain level of harmony with the spirit. An outer fire in the sacred space of a ritual has the power to stop an inner fire from consuming everything by producing a moderating force that counters the appetite for speed and restlessness. When this happens, people wake up from their stupor and become able to distinguish between pursuits that fulfill their purpose and pursuits that do not. Fire must be redefined to become an instrument that offers the possibility of connection. And fire rituals must be seen within this context where they help renew and strengthen one's relationship with the past, the present, and the future. One cannot maintain this focus without discovering in it the active role of the ancestors in one's life and becoming as clear as possible about their own purpose. This is why I think a catalog of fire rituals for people to choose from is not as important as a deep understanding of the fire that blazes within and of how, when neglected, this inner fire drives the modern world to destruction in the interest of progress. To moderate the effects of fire, modern people need rituals of water. When it comes to the other elements following fire, so there's fire, and this is according to the Dagara cosmological wheel, so to speak. So it starts with fire. Second element is water. Third element is earth. Fourth element is minerals. Fifth element is nature, vegetation. Um, so as I read through, it's, it's a lot to read, and it's a lot that wouldn't apply, again, to an individual. So I'll give an in-depth um, reading to the portions that apply, like defining each element, and then I'll 
gloss over the ritual portions because they're very detailed and it takes a village, literally. So the next up is water. We have described water as the second element in the cosmological wheel, a key element that at the beginning cooled the raging fires and brought stability, reorienting the cosmic energy toward producing continuity and community. Since then, people all over the world have felt the need to return again and again to water for purification, cleansing, reconciling, and making peace in the face of the onslaught of life's challenges. This means that to the indigenous, challenge or crisis is cosmologically and spiritually symptomatic of a rise in fire. When someone is in crisis, regardless of the nature of the crisis, that person is said to be returning to fire. The distress of the person drifting toward or into fire is a plea for the radically reconciling introduction of water. When there is no water around, we are vulnerable to crisis. People, especially people in crisis, are naturally attracted to water. Many recognize that when they are agitated about something in their lives, they find peace at the waterfront. Just the sight of a large body of water brings a feeling of quiet and peace, a feeling of home. Water resets a system gone dry in which motion is accelerated beyond what we can bear. African healing wisdom looks at physical illness as a fire, moving a person's energy beyond the limit of what he or she can bear. This suggests that we all need water and need rituals of water to stay balanced, oriented, and reconciled. There are countless aspects of human experience that water rituals affect in a healing way. One of them, perhaps the most important, is the emotional self. Many people in the Western world walk around like time bombs, loaded with contradictory emotions that are often so hard to articulate that the individual is dangerous to himself and to his surroundings. Perhaps first among these emotions is grief. In this culture, the challenge of confronting overwhelming grief must be considered the most crucial task requiring the reconciling energy of water. In indigenous Africa, one cannot conceive of a community that does not grieve. In my village, people cry every day. Until grief is restored in the West as the starting place where the modern man and woman might find peace, the culture will continue to abuse and ignore the power of water and in turn will be fascinated with fire. Grief must be approached as a release of the tension created by separation and disconnection from someone or something that matters. The average Western person is grieving about being isolated. Western men, in particular, are grieving about the dead they didn't grieve properly because they were told that men don't cry. In my work, I hear this everywhere. Grief is not only expressed in tears, but also in anger, rage, frustration, and sadness. 
An angry person is a person on the road to tears, the softer version of grief. Sadness and the feeling of heaviness within are symptomatic of a deep well of grief in the psychic underground. One must ask why tears, the softest expression of grief, are not as acceptable in the modern world as our anger and rage. I say this because to indigenous Africans, emotions are sacred. To villagers, it looks as if the West is uncomfortable with tears because one cannot argue verbally, logically, against this kind of emotion. Villagers also believe that Westerners are afraid of emotion because they are afraid of loss of control. Emotions have the tendency to spread from person to person and therefore social control to the Western mind is being risked with any display of emotion. Many Westerners are beginning to see that there is also danger in remaining stuck with rage, anger, and sadness. They are the directionless vehicles of a grief that remains hidden. When these emotions are not allowed a fluid catharsis, one is left in a state of incompleteness. The end of the domination of one's life by such emotions requires an outpouring of liquid. You cannot truly grieve within and remain composed without. Emotion is an extroverted phenomenon and it cannot find its much needed release if expressed only internally. Denied an outward expression, grief grows stronger and organizes itself like a hurricane that can rise up and sweep us away. I have heard many times people express their fear of grief because they feel that if they even begin to release it, they will be overcome, eventually drowning in their own tears. Indeed, this is how it feels, but this is not what actually happens. In my village, emotion is ritualized because it is seen as a sacred thing. If addressed within a sacred space, the emotions of grief can provide powerful relief and healing. Anytime the feeling of loss arises, there is an energy that demands ritual in order to allow reconciliation and the return of peace. These are crises that water rituals can resolve. Water rituals help to shed the massive accumulation of negative emotion due to loss failure and powerlessness each one of these problems heightens our awareness of the challenges of life loss and powerlessness are particularly humbling because they disrupt continuity and reveal our humanity one of the things all humans have in common is loss be it the loss of loved ones or the loss of dreams be it the loss of a job or a relationship, in all of these situations, water rituals are necessary. In order to do a water ritual effectively, one needs a community. There are few personal water rituals as the Dagara people don't comprehend the idea of private grief. Grief is a community problem because the person who is sick belongs to the entire community. Just as a wound on your leg 
cannot be approached as the legs problem alone, but must be treated as a problem for the entire body. A person in a village who is sick with grief sickens the rest of the village. So next up, he goes into describing a communal grief ritual. And it's very extensive. I'm not going to read that. Um, After that, he describes a ritual of reconciliation. That's also um, a communal ritual. But I think I'll read that to give an idea of how water rituals help the community. Another example of a water ritual that has been practiced in a variety of indigenous cultures throughout the African continent is called the reconciliation ritual. This ritual has to do with cleansing and purifying the psyche. Every year, the village gathers for its reconciliation ritual at the local river. In the water, healers await each villager who comes for healing. As the villager approaches the water, he or she is received by the healers and reminded of the spiritual depth of the event. The villager then enters the water and walks to the main healer who asks a series of questions about the act of cleansing to ensure that the person seeking healing understands the meaning of cleansing, admits to being in need of it, and acknowledges that it can only be granted by the ancestors. Sometimes a question as blunt as, do you understand what you're here to do, is asked to make sure that the person is sincere and is not involved in performing. The healer then declares to the villager that he or she is not the one who is going to do the healing. This is done by the very spirit that dwells in the water. After this short dialogue, the villager is dunked into the water and kept underwater for as long as they can hold their breath, sometimes a little bit beyond this point to ensure a breakthrough. At this point, the villager is released and dashes out of the water like a bullet full of emotion. They are then held gently by some assistance and guided back to the village, which welcomes them with a loud cheer. They are a new person. Notice here that the healer does not heal, but is like an assistant to the water spirit who actually does the healing. Indeed, the indigenous believe the real cleansing takes place under water. The water spirit does not come to you until the moment when you feel very uncomfortable. This is an extension of the belief that every time the other world is present, everybody should feel uncomfortable. Reading this is very interesting, very interesting for any black person in the West who attended, uh, I'm speaking in America, not the entire West, because I don't know what happened in Europe or in any other place where um, people who were taken from the continent experienced Christianity. Um, But in the South, where my great-grandmother was raised on a farm, um, the baptism, the baptism in the water, um, wow, 
It's not something introduced to us by Christianity. Uh, indigenous African spirituality and practices is literally since the beginning of time. And so allowing the water spirit being dipped into the water, being assisted by the community to get dipped in the water, to be comforted after coming up out of the water, that is not a Christian practice per se, the baptism. It is now. I mean, people do it. We even have countless artwork dedicated to the um, baptism by water. But it's interesting to read this. This is my first time reading this portion of the book. And he is from Ghana. His practices are thousands of years old and passed down through generations. He's talking about indigenous African spirituality that has nothing to do with with the European version of Christianity. And it's just interesting. And at the end of this passage, he speaks about um, missionaries who who came to the continent for the purposes that they did. And he writes that missionaries who witnessed these rituals either regarded them as a strange, pre-biblical, quote-unquote, paganism, or decided that indigenous people were Christians at heart. Has everything got to be their perspective? But again, there is more than one way to look at the world and to be in this world than the way Europeans determine. And it's way past time we start understanding that we do have definitions of and about and for ourselves. Um, In need of the blessing of divine guidance. And what divine guidance did they bring to the African continent? You can answer that question for yourself. It's still happening to to this day. And it has not benefited indigenous Africans. However, to the Dagara, a ritual such as this signifies renewal, rebirth, and purification. The cleansing of a water ritual is seen by indigenous people as something to be done with regularity because of human vulnerability to contamination by negative energy. I do this quite frequently right here in the West. The next up is a ritual of prosperity. The spirit of water is the spirit that watches over the fetus as it develops, promising it a home and the prosperity it needs to fulfill its purpose after it is born. One of the qualities held by the element water is that of focus, and an appeal can be made to water to bring us the focus needed to live the purposeful life that we were born to and to ensure the prosperity sufficient to survive and thrive while living in this purpose. There is a ritual done each year by some villages that could be easily adopted by the West. A group of people seeking the prosperity that the focus found in water can bring would build a small boat. Decorating the boat becomes a group project with each person offering something of personal value to the decoration so that the boat becomes something of great beauty. In the invocation, 
each person would state what they needed in order to prosper in the coming year, thanking the mother of water for the focus and attention that she brings, and humbly off humbly offering their contribution on the boat as a token of their gratitude. The requests should be quite specific and quite clear, not just a general request for prosperity. At the end of the invocation, with singing, drumming, and general joy, the boat is set into a river of running water that runs to the sea. Oh, I love that. Um, the next ritual is a ritual of libation. That's the last one included. And I'll go ahead and read that one. Besides these examples of community water rituals, there is a more private ritual that can be done by anyone needing the continued blessings of peace and good fortune. I referred to it at the beginning of this chapter as a libation. Any water poured to the ancestors or spirit beings is received in the other world for the purpose of providing peaceful continuity. This is something that can be done as a thank you to spirits for something they've helped accomplish or for their continued protection. If you have established a sacred altar in your house, it is recommended that you go there every morning with a glass of fresh, cold water. As you kneel or sit at the altar, holding the water in your hand, Pray to the spirit of the ancestors and to any spirit being you know, inviting them to be the main artisans of the day ahead of you. It is useful to tell in as much detail as possible what the content of the day is going to be, including meetings that are very important to you, and even express such things as your concerns about commuting in traffic. The focus here is on the activities that you want to be monitored by spirit. At the end, pour a little water on the altar, asking the ancestors to take it and use it as a peaceful umbrella that protects against the heat of misfortune, bad luck, and disappointment. Leave the glass or bowl of water on the altar at all times as the presence of water anywhere indicates your desire for peace reconciliation, and focus in that place. A day that begins this way offers more happy surprises than bad ones. A libation is salutary every time you face something with a little challenge in it. I said that word wrong, so I'm going to reread <laughs> the sentence. A libation is salutary every time you face something with, with a little challenge in it. A final and even simpler ritual involves simply maintaining a bowl of water someplace where you spend time, such as on an altar, in the house, or at an office, placing a bowl of water in a room where a difficult discussion or meeting is to take place can have a remarkable effect on the tone of the interaction. The mere presence of water near us is calming and reminds us of the peace and reconciliation we desire in all aspects of our lives. 
Okay, so I actually said the word salutary correct the first time in reference to libations. S-A-L-U-T-A-R-Y. Salutary. And the definition is producing good effects, beneficial. Health giving. Effecting or designed to effect an improvement. Favorable to health, wholesome. Promoting or intended to promote an improvement or beneficial effect. Favorable to or promoting health, healthful. Promoting or conducive to some beneficial purpose, wholesome. So libation, pouring libation is a salutary. Salutary. Ritual practice. Ashe. The next element up on the indigenous African cosmological wheel, according to the Dagara people, is the element of earth. Earth is where we belong. She is our home. She gives us sustenance unconditionally and makes it possible for us to feel connected. Earth is where we go to and where we depart from. This means that she sees us in a way that no one can. The nourishment and support of the Earth Mother grants us the feeling of belonging that allows us to expand and grow because we feel strong. Our well-being depends on this feeling of belonging and perhaps this is why each of us fosters some type of territorial instinct, wishing to protect that which nourishes us. Earth's protection reflects her undivided commitment to us. We in turn protect her because she defines us and provides us with an abundance of resources. Earth rituals greatly emphasize the sense of belonging, self-worth, and community, including all forms of relationships. They serve as an opportunity for a group of people to demonstrate their ability to give attention, love, appreciation, and caring to an individual who needs it badly. This is how certain psychological illnesses are healed. Our womb is the earth. It is our place of origination. Feelings of absence, of being out of touch, any form of alienation, anonymity, and purposelessness, all are symptomatic of a disconnection with the earth. No other element can heal the hollow psyche in search of fulfillment. And for such situations, earth rituals are required. Earth rituals and touch. One aspect of earth ritual that people in the West are clearly in need of involves touching. Human hands carry a huge amount of healing energy, provided that one is aware of the kind of mental alignment that must accompany their touch. Our hands are healing instruments that must be treated as sacred. Many modern psychological and physical illnesses are linked to energetic depletion due to touchless surroundings. When the individualism of the West 
results in physical and emotional isolation from others, as it often does. People can become so starved for touch that their need can translate into severe physical illness. Isolated from others, people become afraid of touch, especially unsolicited touch. But a person's level of concern about being touched is almost always proportional to his or her need for it. There is a deeply sacred dimension to touch, and therefore a ritual that authorizes people to touch one another allows them to relax in a sacred context. So there is a need to reacquaint people with the sacredness of touch. In my village, for instance, children spend their early years on the backs of their mothers or babysitters. Wherever they go, they hang on their back comfortably, enjoying the warm protection of their guardian's body. At night, they sleep in the same bed with their parents. This continuous availability of touch nourishes something in the person's psyche that is fundamental to a future sense of community. The person later becomes aware of what a sense of belonging is and can think of himself or herself outside of a community with other people. I believe strongly that people who crave community in this country also crave the healing touch of human hands. The road to a real sense of community begins with the ability to restore the amount of touch that the body has been denied since the beginning of its human journey. The craving of the body for what is vaguely known as love corresponds to the need for filling up the great hole left in the psyche by a lack of tender physical contact. Restoring touch will help make it possible to stay in touch. When people get together, the initial enjoyment of the encounter comes from their psyches touching one another energetically at close proximity. I have noticed among Westerners, however, that the intensity of the need for connection with another person competes with a powerful ambivalence about touch that often leads to an exasperating shallowness of communication and interaction. One sees this quite literally between two people who love each other but who are in conflict. They fail to recognize that their difficulties may have nothing to do with one of them being wrong about issues between them. What they are really troubled by is the lack of being touched. The lack of touch is the greatest source of grief in modern culture. Poor self-esteem and the shrinking of a person's sense of identity can be traced in part to the lack of touch, but the restoration of touch must be done properly and not as a way of trying to stop a person from experiencing any emotion he or she needs to experience in the interest of healing. It also must avoid becoming a vulture's gesture intended to consume an outpouring of energy. The danger is that when touch does not actually give energy to another person, it absorbs it or scares it into protective silence. The person guilty of such energetic felonies may not even be aware of what they're doing. In a context in which deprivation from touch is the rule, people grieve and crave 
secretly. This internal grieving is dangerous because it attacks the psyche and breeds more negative energy within. The opportunity to cry can trigger a healing process that touch accelerates if it is offered wisely and thoughtfully. The hungriest person inside us is not the one who is thinking about dinner, but the one who has not felt loved for a long time. This is why in Africa, amid scarcity of the worst sort, people still manage to wear a smile to be genuinely generous and hospitable. While their physical stomachs are empty, their psychic bellies are overfilled with the food of touch. It is not possible to engage in a productive earth ritual without proper touch. Earth is the archetypal, let me put that word in here, A-R-C-H, E-T-Y-P-A-L. Archetypal. Archetypal. Very typical of a certain kind of person or thing. Earth is the archetypal symbol of giving. Indeed, the earth teaches us that touching must take the place of taking or the modern world will continue to destroy itself by devouring everything that is consumable. The earth element section does include three uh, earth rituals. I'm only gonna read the first one, but um, the first one is Earth Ritual for Healing One Person. The second is Lying on Earth's Lap. And the last one is a Ritual of Symbolic Burial. I'll just read the first one. The simplest earth ritual, the simplest earth rituals do not require great physical preparation. For example, imagine a person who is so caught up in an eating disorder that his inflated body makes him worry tremendously. Imagine also that this person is constantly trying to do things for others to make them feel comfortable. An indigenous perception of this person is that he is using eating as a way to communicate his need for another type of nourishment, emotional nourishment, a group of people would gather around that person for an earth ritual. Each participant must know the person well. Together, their knowledge of the person is complete. At the start, a prayer is made to the Great Mother to be present at the ritual. Each person is allowed to call on the Great Mother to help them summon the nurturer in themselves and to show them the way to give as much as they have to a person they care for very much. Then the person in need speaks about himself in prayerful terms, stressing that which constitutes the challenges in his life. It could sound something like this. Oh, great mother, I come to you as a child. 
very empty inside. I grew up in a family where I became the caretaker at a very young age. I found myself trying to make things right for others. Never have I felt connected in ways that recognize my efforts. I feel as if I have never belonged to anything. And no matter how hard I work to correct this, my psyche suffers greatly from a silent ostracism. I'm tired of being a wanderer. I'm tired of giving that which I do not have. I'm tired of being told silently that this is all I can do. I want my real self to come out and to be seen. I want to go home. I want to be home. I want to be among people who see me for who I am, who make me feel as if I matter. Such a prayer is somewhat general, but it contains enough emotional energy for the rest of the group to work with. The role of the group is now to address the person, one speaker at a time, praising everything that is good about him. This can be done in the form of a song, in plain words, or both. The goal is to make the person feel recognized, acknowledged, and alive. In order to do that, the group must demonstrate sincerity and great depth in their interaction with the person. Since a huge portion of human illness comes from not being seen, from the weight of anonymity upon the self, the purpose here is to remove the cloak of hiddenness from the person and to restore light to their psyche. The amount of emotion released in this process can be enormous. One of the ways in which emotion is released is through touch. The way a person is held determines the amount of emotion released, and if words and hymns can be punctuated with sincere gestures of love, such as touch, the healing of the person can be very profound. Notice that this kind of ritual is supposed to focus entirely on one individual. Depending on how many people are present, the ritual can last from one to three hours. This ritual can take place anywhere, in the living room of a house, in someone's backyard, or in an empty lecture room. Privacy in the open air would be best. But if that is not available in the modern world, a private enclosed space will do. The earth part of the ritual is not the dirt or the sitting on the ground, but the words of acknowledgement and support. The collective attention to one person and whenever possible, the human touch. Because earth is support and attention Anytime we are positively spotlighted and feel great about it, we are receiving something earthy. Ashe. Element number four on the cosmological wheel are minerals, stones. 
mineral rituals aim at restoring lost memories. We have described the element mineral as the storage place of information and have explained that when there is a break in continuity of information and history, society experiences turbulence. One of the key memories that mineral rituals evoke is the life purpose linked to each human being. As I have said, in many indigenous cultures, it is understood that everyone comes into this world for a reason. In order to enter into this world, one must have an approved project to carry out. The problem is that the clarity with which we embark on our journey to earth begins to fade upon arrival. Our ability to accomplish our purpose requires a village in which there are other people who know what our purpose is and are able to design a system that presents us with continual reminders of it throughout our lives. Everyone is gifted. This means that everyone has something to give. A person who does not feel gifted is lost in a pit of oblivion and confusion. Sometimes we are the last people to recognize our own gifts. When they are shown to us by a group of people, they carry a different and larger meaning and we feel acknowledged and recognized, which increases our sense of belonging. The task of a community is to use its knowledge of each person's gifts to help the person make a connection between his or her gifts and the images of strength that regularly occur in that person's psyche. In this way, each person can then act from the knowledge of her or his unique purpose. In other words, we are born with a profession and to be most proficient as we go through life, all we need to do is remember our profession, mineral rituals and identity crisis. A person's purpose is energetically inscribed in their bones and its actual translation into work should agree with the message engraved in these bones. The question is, what happens when what you do does not align with who you are? It means that you are betraying the very vitality that defines you and are thus inviting great pain into your life. You are likely to experience low self-worth, a lack of enthusiasm about what you are doing, and above all, of a nagging sense of inner emptiness. In short, you will experience an identity crisis. So many people in the modern world caught between their commitment to survival and their intuitive allegiance to a genuine life purpose find themselves forced. <laughs> I'm stuttering because as I read these words, there are so many people including myself, that are crossing my mind. And my emotions are affected, um, specifically thinking how Black people in America, where I am, have been so cut off from our culture and how deeply the, the term know thyself applies to us and how people are intentionally working to keep us from knowing ourselves. 
is so deep. So many people in the modern world caught between their commitment to survival and their intuitive allegiance to a genuine life purpose find themselves forced to sacrifice their purpose to make a living. It is for these people that mineral rituals must be done. Their very livelihood undermines their reason for being. There is no greater harm done to a person than the harm of a life activity that competes against or contradicts their purpose. The modern world does not seem to provide an ideal place for people to pursue their life project. For the very survival of the Western economic system demands a state of constant striving and sacrifice from the people who work within it. It may seem that you are threatening your economic survival if you abandon the prevailing economic system to pursue something as seemingly intangible as a personal life purpose. Yet, pursuing one's life purpose is the foundation on which the health of both the individual and the community rests. Indigenous people know that there is collective memory and there is individual memory. Collective memory is not a vast well that exists separate from individual people. It is the sum total of the personal memories of each person. In other words, for a village, a tribe, and a culture to remember, each individual must master the ability to remember the knowledge that lives in his or her bones. Indigenous people recognize that when the individual does not remember, gradually it is the culture, the society, that forgets. Individuals who forget their life purpose put the whole community at risk. They begin to look outside themselves for their purpose. And society often responds to their demand by creating artificial goals. But society loses in this process because it is not receiving what is the individual's to give. Not to know what gift you're bringing to your people implies that you cannot deliver. If you cannot give, it means that the community cannot receive from you. Yeah. I'm going to share just one of the rituals. Storytelling as a mineral ritual. In the village, stories are clearly seen as in the domain of the element mineral, holding the key to memory and purpose. Everyone must participate and bathe in mythologies. Stories are not just for children. They are for the child in everyone who remembers and understands. Stories open a world wherein relating to others and the world is automatic, and they boost imagination toward a place of better self-knowledge. Without stories, a society will find it difficult to hold itself together. It is as if stories bond people together and allow each individual to better comprehend what their place is in the world and how their place holds everything else together. Indigenous teachings are derived from stories that they see as eternal blueprints for human wisdom. Like a forest in which countless beings find their home, stories are places where each one of us can find a home.
The home in the story is the image we hang on to and identify with. It represents our address in the city of the story. This home can change from story to story and from one day to the next. This is because as the circumstances of our lives change, so too does the place we inhabit in stories. In ritual storytelling, the narrative must guide and inspire people. First, the story must be chosen to reflect current matters. Then, someone must tell it in a way that involves every listener so that everyone finds something to identify with in the story and the teller and audience become one. The teller borrows his story from the pool of ancestral lore. As they listen, people must find a place for themselves inside the story. This place will be each person's area of focus as they work to recall their deep identity. Who we are appears spontaneously within myth if we allow ourselves to be open to it. Each place in the story is a milestone representing someone and everyone's position in the story will be more or less different. At the end of the story, each person should have received some further insight into his or her own purpose or position. Such clarity indicates an ability to locate oneself even in the middle of chaos and confusion. It is as if confusion and dissatisfaction are the psyche's way of telling us that we're not where we're supposed to be. Clarity about one's position is essential to our sense of identity and important for healing because ritual storytelling can be of great value in helping people locate themselves in society and in the world. Mineral tells us that we know what we need to know if we would but remember. In our bones is the knowledge that tells us how to connect to the ancestral energies through the fire, how to decipher the hieroglyphics of nature, how to nourish ourselves from the abundance of the earth without destroying it, and how to find reconciliation to a myriad of troubles and woes in the water. Mineral is also metal, the wire of communication that connects all of the individuals in a community through stories and collective memories. The elders say that the rocks can speak, but their voice is so tiny that it can barely be heard. The rocks remind us to be still and to listen carefully, to stop searching outside of ourselves for that which we already hold within. And now the fifth element, nature. It is hard to separate nature rituals from water, fire, earth, and mineral rituals, since every ritual is an attempt to change our relationship with the other world and since nature is all about change and transformation, there is some sense in which every ritual pertains to nature and aims to reveal, heal, 
and reinstate our own innermost nature. Nature rituals and purpose. Nature rituals, like mineral rituals, help people remain focused on their true purpose. To be human is to be engaged in a challenging task of continual readjustment and fine-tuning, especially in a world that struggles to distance itself from nature. The repeated distractions that plague life in the modern world separate us, not only from the natural world, but from our own essential nature. The modern world is a denaturalized world that regards nature as something standing in the way of progress. Consequently, people need nature rituals in order to get closer to their inner selves and to nature. Any one of the rituals described thus far can combine nature with its principal element. Doing so is as simple as making sure that the place you choose for the ritual is as close to nature as possible. Indeed, while it is possible to do a ritual in an amphitheater or in a hotel ballroom, this same ritual will generate greater energy if done in the woods. In the modern world, as in the indigenous world, ritual is best done out of doors, surrounded by the elements of the natural world. A nature ritual with trees. My first nature ritual consisted of looking at a tree. The exercise led me to change my attitude toward trees. It made me realize how much patient love and caring a tree can have. It allowed me to grasp more fully the concept of trees as our guardians commissioned by our mother, the earth, to provide safety and comfort as we travel through life. Let us take a group of people willing to explore nature and the trees ritualistically and let us guide them through the process. We cannot assume that these people live in nature. Therefore, in the morning of the ritual, they should gather for an invocation in which they brief the spirit of nature on what is about to happen. In their prayer, an emphasis should be placed on homecoming, recognizing in words the long separation which has caused so much loss. A humble request should be made for guidance as to how to look, how to notice, how to acknowledge what is noticed. The prayer should explain to spirit and to the ritual participants that we are going to walk inside the bosom of nature. While we wander silently, we will listen for a calling from a tree. If and when we do feel called, we will go sit and be with the tree that called us long enough to experience communion with it. After the prayer, people can silently walk into the woods and wander separately until each one of them finds a tree that calls. The idea is to sit on the earth facing the tree that called to you and meditate with it. This means deleting any mental activity that distracts from being present 
to the tree. Meanwhile, somewhere in the woods, an elder or a ritual leader will play a drum, slowly and gently sending sound waves to every station where a person is interacting with the tree. After several hours have passed, the ritual leader begins chanting and everyone will know that it is time to go where the voice comes from. It may take another hour or two for everyone to return. A closing prayer of acknowledgement and gratitude for what has happened is in order. Then people can gather back at a designated place where they can spend some time sharing what they experienced in the woods. And then he goes on to describe rituals that combine nature and fire, nature and water, nature and earth, nature and mineral, nature rituals and giveaways. And the final ritual is nature rituals and masks. In the West, when nature is neglected, people often wear masks in order to survive. The mask may be a professional role. It sometimes comes with a suit or a uniform and is a refuge, a place of anonymity. Those who don't wear a mask in this culture risk being hurt, and thus many are driven to find one. The problem is that as people hide behind these masks, they become defined by them and unable to tell the difference between what is natural and what is not. Sometimes they become so profoundly disconnected from their true self that they think that their mask is their true self, their true nature. Nature rituals aimed at unmasking the true self need to begin by addressing the theme of change. The goal is to allow people to relax, which will allow people to let go of their masks and to find out how it feels to be without a mask for a moment. Healing begins when the mask is released from the self, for people can't transform when they are hiding behind them. Talking is often inadequate for helping people drop their masks, and some of the best ways to accomplish this kind of change are through nonverbal forms of ritual, such as dance, and activities that evoke strong emotions. This is what makes tribal communities rely so heavily on rhythm and dance. Rhythm is not entertainment. Rather, it is a tool to shake off the debris of one's unnatural masks. When one is not in rhythm, one becomes depressed. Likewise, depression or being estranged from one's natural magic shows in being out of rhythm. An indigenous person can easily identify the mask someone carries by watching that person dance or play a drum. Music and dance are diagnostic tools that bring out of hiding the parts of the body that are masked or that are being subjected to severe control by unnatural forces. The great majority of Westerners carry these constraints around the hips, the upper spinal column, and the face. 
These parts of the body rarely participate in natural activities in Western cultures. Concerts attract people because the energy of the music challenges the natural self to come out. If people at a concert were to go where their feelings were trying to lead them, they would naturally burst into dance. Instead, more often than not, one is expected to refrain from spontaneity and to applaud politely. This is very hard on the spirit. The idea of listening to music or watching performers engage in spontaneous and frenzied rhythm and dance without joining in is indeed unnatural. Like all rituals of nature, the mask-making ritual, which he described here, was a mask-making ritual. I didn't go into those details, but... All rituals of nature help people focus on their purpose and reason for being. On the people we would be if we could drop all artifice and pretense and could see our true purpose clearly. Rituals of nature, in the indigenous view, help people transform so that they become more real, more respectful of the gifts provided by the natural world and more attuned to the nature within us, that is, to our own true nature. Healing, by definition, is this process of coming closer to nature, to the nature around us, as well as the true nature within.